welcome everyone to the Privacy Whisper Live Talks. Today I'm here with Dr. Alex Hanna, Director of Research at their, at their Institute, and Professor Emily M. Bender. Uh, she's a professor of linguistics at the University of Washington. And today we're going to talk about understand larger language models and breaking down the AI hype. Uh, hi, Alex. Hi, Emily. Welcome. Uh, this is a very anticipated session. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you for uh, having us on. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Um, for those who don't know, Alex and Emily, they host a podcast, and I always need to read the name of the podcast, and, and I heard that I understood that <laughs> I need to see, say it slowly. So it's the Mystery AI Hype Theater 3000 podcast. It's a very informative and entertaining podcast. They host it together. And I invite you to check it out. Especially, I just listening uh, recently, I, I listened to the August episode where they talk about self-regulation. It's very interesting, especially for working with privacy. We will love it. So check it out, their podcast. And today, uh, there's a, we are going to talk about various topics around AI, AI hub, large language models, privacy, fundamental rights. So it's uh, a lot to cover. We are going to talk about, first, we'll start with with the AI hype, what the current AI hype is and uh, what are the main counter arguments? Why, why do we have this hype now? Then we'll talk a little bit about the stochastic parrots paper, uh, co-authored by Professor Bender, uh, Tim Jabru and others, and why this paper caused so much buzz in AI cycle. So what's, what's going on with this uh, paper? Then we move to uh, Alex's paper about data set development. So how it works, the subjects and the phases of data set development, and how can we think about privacy issues during data set development. And then we move to AI ethics and privacy professionals. So many privacy people now are thinking about AI governance or how to apply, how to think about AI ethics. And, and there's the AI community is already thinking about that for at least uh, a decade. So how can we work together, but AI community, the privacy community, so how can we develop this, this whole thing of AI governance together? How, how can we think about it? So it's a lot to cover. If you have questions, please get a, a real pen and paper, write it down, and then you please save it to the end. So let's have all the questions then. Of course, feel free to use the chat. You see it's very busy here. You, you can freely talk about your thoughts and whatever you want. And before you start, make sure to subscribe to the Privacy Whisper newsletter. Every week I discuss privacy and AI and uh, some critical topics in this intersection. And you also get to know about the upcoming events and uh, talks and also the AI book club that we are starting uh, this month. So let's start. Uh, what? Let's talk about AI hype. I think it's uh, Emily and Alex, they have a podcast about it. So they have so much to talk and I think the audience has so much to, to hear about what they have to say about that. So this latest AI wave, we can say that it started in November with the launch of ChatGPT. Suddenly, even people who never, who only heard of AI in, in the context of science fiction, they, people started to talk about large language models and AI chatbots. And AI is definitely not a new field. It's, it's here for decades. And there are consumer facing AI products here also for at least a decade. People are interacting with it. So what's about this AI hype now, Alex and Emily? So I, one thing I have to say is I really appreciate that in this current wave, the phrase large language models actually made it out into the world because that's a better description. Mm. It's still not perfect, but it's a better mm -hmm. description of what something like ChatGPT is than calling it AI or even worse, an AI. Um, this mm. is a system for manipulating text. What it's built to do is to provide a plausible continuation 
of some input prompt. So what's the likely next word? What's the likely next word? The problem is it is so plausible that we interpret it as if it's language. And we do that by imagining a mind behind it. And so everybody got really excited. Um, but I have to say the hype was there before ChatGPT was mm -hmm. released. It was just sort of contained within tech circles. So we started our podcast in August of last year. And that was in sort of having been fed up with so much AI hype over, in my case, the preceding maybe two or three years. But um, Alex has been doing some deep dives into the history of this. And AI hype has been around as long as AI as well. AI's net doesn't exist. AI hype has been around as long as people have been claiming to be working on AI. Better way to say it. Yeah, and I mean, we we want to back up and also say, I mean, do some definitional work, not because we're 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 you know pedants and need to put you know strict guardrails on everything. It's because in the definition itself, you can see where these slippages are. So the by the term AI, AI itself is notoriously difficult to define. You know, the term itself gets attributed to going back to 1956 to a guy named John McCarthy, who, you know, used it as a way to uh, kind of subvert and describe a whole kind of research agenda that ranged from everything from uh, finite automata to programming languages to um, kind of research in in neurobiology to kinds of anything that could work. So you could even take a programming language like Lisp or Python or something, and that was being called AI back in the 50s. Um, but that's morphed more and more. And in the current era, it's being used for everything from what seems to be large language models, as Emily pointed out, but things as basic as linear regression or logistic regression or a big series of if-else statements or any things in robotics. So finding the definition of AI there um, does more to obfuscate rather than clarify. Um, then hype itself has its own definition. I mean, hype is, you know, it, there's hype cycles in everything and all kinds of technologies, whether it's blockchain or crypto or NFTs. And hype has to do more with the political economy and the kind of ways in which people are going to benefit and get rich off of particular types of schemes rather than any kind of new or novel sorts of technologies. So AI hype is this, this combination of that. You have to get in on this lest your company or your nonprofit or your government institution is going to be left behind. And as Emily said, we were doing AI hype uh, we started this thing in, in, in August of last year, um, in particularly focused on large language models, but the kind of AI that has been hyped in this current period is, is, has predated large language models. It's included things like self-driving cars. It's included image generation technologies. It's included things like, I don't know, text to image, voice to image, uh, text to voice, image to voice, which is one of the gross uh, versions of this we've seen, uh, but it's encompassed a whole host of different types of technologies. And do you think, for, so we, from a more uh, regulatory point of view, the AI Act is coming. So it's been in a legislative process for months, uh, I think even uh, more, more than a year already. So do you think it's also a bit of a PR play because regulation is really coming, at least from the European side. So uh, it's a strong regulation, high fines, uh, oversight. 
And do you think the hype and this media cycle, in very intensive media cycle, is a type of PR play to, to kind of counter the narrative of the regulatory narrative and also hold things a little bit down to say, oh, you really want to, to have such a strong regulation when the hype is great and AGI is coming? Do, do you see this aspect as well? I, I think so. I think that um, the release of ChatGPT doesn't necessarily look like that to me. And, and part of what happened was OpenAI set it up so that anybody all around the world who had an internet connection could go and play with it and then you know, report back what they'd seen. So they basically recruited a million people to cherry pick cool examples and put them out in the world. So that generated a lot of hype. But we do see um, the CEOs of these companies and, and others near them going around on you know, media tours and talking very publicly to policymakers around the world um, with this weird narrative of, you know, we need regulation to keep this from becoming, you know, Skynet or Terminator or some one of these evil AIs that's going to kill everybody. And that amounts to, oh, look at that monster over there. Please disregard all of the human rights abuses that are currently happening in the name of this system and be afraid of this mythical AI. So that definitely does feel like a reaction to people getting serious about regulation. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I think there is a lot of PR play and uh, at least the media cycle. And if we think of, okay, there was the crypto and then metaverse and also it played very well with the next, the media always needs a next big cycle that every, uh, there was the, the COVID cycle. And then, okay, now we need to talk about something else. And then AI came and then suddenly it's everything AI. And I would like to talk a little bit about stochastic parrots. Uh, pe Professor Bender and co-authors, so Dr. Tim Nitschebrew, Dr. Uh, Margaret Mitchell, and Angelina McMillan uh, Major, they wrote a paper called uh, why, why the stochastic parrot, uh, sorry, on the dangers of stochastic parrots, can, can, can language models be too big? So this was their paper and it generated a lot of buzz. Uh, mostly I would say in the AI community, but more and more with AI hype and also more people talking about it. Other communities and a little bit the privacy community also started to, to get aware, become aware of this paper and, and talk about it. And first of all, I would like to, I, I brought the abstract. So in, I, I will talk what, what they talk about in the paper. So in the paper, uh, they, they say, that's the abstract. In the past three years of working, natural language processing have been characterized by the development and deployment of ever large language models. So that's what we're talking about, AI, large language models. And then they ask, they, they, they say, in this paper, we take a step back and ask, how big is too big? What are the possible risks associated with this technology and what paths are available for mitigating those risks? And then they provide recommendations, including weighting the environmental and financial costs. First, uh, investing resources into curating and carefully documenting data sets rather than ingesting everything on the web. Carrying out pre-development exercises, evaluating how the planned approach fits into research and development goals and supports stakeholder values and encouraging research direction beyond every ever larger language models. So this was this is the abstract of the paper. Uh, if anyone in the chat can please post a link here for for everyone to, to download and, and read. If you want to read, like please, if someone can Google it and, and put it here in the chat. So uh, and then it's interesting that this expression stochastic parrot you can find on Wiki if you if you if you uh, search on the internet you you find a, a Wikipedia entry and it says that stochastic means random and involving chance of probability. And it's it's written here that it was a, in the context of large language model, it means 
a stochastic parrot is a large language model that is good at generating convincing language, but does not actually understand the meaning of the language it's processing. And the term was coined by Professor Vender in, the, in this paper that we are talking about. So I'd like to hear uh, directly from Professor Bender, also from, from Dr. Hanna. So why this paper generated so much buzz? So far, it was cited more than 2,000 times. And still, I, I, I saw this number uh, in, in one source. Maybe it's even much more than that. And, and I, my, my source was wrong. So what's about this paper? It sounds like a really interesting research paper uh, providing uh, valuable insights into AI development and, and important questions. So why generated so much buzz? And, and, yeah, I would like yeah, to. Yeah. Um, so I think it's first important to locate this paper in time. So in the abstract, we say in the past three years, and that is the three years leading up to the end of 2020. This paper was written in late 2020. Um, and we were already seeing you know, a lot of effort going into building ever larger language models. They weren't so much referred to as AI at that point. Um, a lot of the work was happening within the field of natural language processing, um, you know, in Prior to the mid-20-teens, I think, AI was considered academically not a very respectable field. Like it, it was considered because of all of the preceding hype cycles, it was like, no, you don't work on AI, you work on computer vision or you work on natural language processing or you work. And um, many people nowadays think about NLP and computer vision as subfields of AI. And I strongly resist that. I think that natural language processing as a field that's interested in building language technology has lots of reasons to exist, lots of motivation that are completely separate from the project of building AI. So just to sort of locate this, we weren't really talking about it. I, I haven't looked to see if we use the phrase AI or artificial intelligence in that paper, um, but it's um, we were definitely looking at this from the point of view of just natural language processing. Um, and paper started because Dr. Gebru within Google was seeing this like headlong rush towards bigger and bigger and bigger. And she wanted something to point to in her role as a um, research scientist at Google on AI ethics um, to be able to point people to to say, hey, look, here's the things we should be considering if we want to do this kind of research responsibly. So she asked me if I knew of any such papers. And I said, no, but here's the kinds of issues that come to mind. And the next day I said, hey, that sounds like a paper outline, let's write this paper. Um, and I brought in um, my PhD student, now Dr. Angelina McMillan Major, Dr. Gebru brought in Dr. Mitchell and other members of their team at Google. There were seven of us total. And we put together um, what's effectively a survey paper of all of the different um, kinds of risks that had been identified to that point. And we missed some, I have to say. We, we missed some and underestimated others. Um, and paper went through um, Google's internal publication approval process called PubApprove. We submitted it to the conference. While it was undergoing review at the conference, somebody inside Google, and I'm not at Google, so I don't have details, um, got upset about the paper and said, you have to retract this paper or take all Googlers' names off of it. Um, and uh, Dr. Gebru said, this is not okay. It is my job to do research and write papers. And so I need to understand what happened here so that I can continue to do my job. That result is Google fired her. It became a big news story. So the paper is a solid paper. I'm proud of it. It's a good academic paper. But the degree of attention had a lot to do with the fact that Google got very upset about it. Um, and that is 
part of why I think it's become so widely read and part of why the phrase stochastic parrots has sort of gone out into the lexicon. And as a linguist, it has been fascinating to watch. Um, and I, you know, through like web searches and Twitter searches, how initially the phrase referred to the paper and then it was being used to refer to language models or our argument about them by people who had read the paper and then eventually by people who hadn't seen the paper at all. And that was just as a linguist, that's an enormous treat to get to watch something like that happen. Interesting. And I want to say, yeah, I wanted to point out a few things just about the kind of response to it, too. It's very interesting. And, and, and I know Emily will speak very much to the to the particular sort of elements of the paper. But I do want to highlight a few things, especially from Google's response to this. Um, so I was on the Google team when when this was happening. And um, the few responses to it is interesting because the rationale provided about why the paper needed to be retracted was never clear. Uh, one of them was it was not kind of vigorously, uh, didn't have enough kind of citations to it. And what was the number of citations? It was something like 150. Like, uh, well, 128 at submission time. Yeah, this was a densely yeah, cited It was paper. a very, very, very densely cited paper, which is unusual for most academic papers and highly unusual. I, I'm a sociologist. And even seeing a computer science paper with that many citations is incredibly unusual to see that much that much citational work. So even coming from this from the perspective of looking at kind of the ways that other people do citation within computer science, it was it was probably oversighted. It was probably an outlier. And I'm sure some enterprising sociologist of science or somebody can actually see how many citations there are in, in the, the kind of modal ACM paper. And the second thing is just what they responded to, which typically was around environmental concerns, which is very funny to see. This is kind of something we've joked about, this kind of obsession with Google and sex having with section three of the paper, which focuses on the environmental cost of these models. It cites in particular one paper by Emma Strubel and um, and and uh, a few other folks on the cost of training certain kinds of models. Uh, and the more and more we're seeing research into this, we're seeing that there is a, a higher and higher environmental cost of these things, including the amount of water it takes to cool data centers that are running uh, GPU and, and in the case of Google, TPU intensive, um, intensive uh, uh, modeling, um, the amounts of and the amounts of rare earth elements it takes to actually build these things. So this is becoming more and more a concern. Google, on the other hand, responded with a paper that was actually very poorly cited and had to do with prop actually proprietary information that they hadn't released on the potential environmental uh, uh, benefits of such models. Um, so I think it's it's really interesting seeing the citation the citational battles of this, which is also one of the things we take up in the podcast, just even seeing what citations are being are being done and, and having that. And tying this also back to the 1950s, even looking at shoddy citational practices. The shoddy citational practices have always been there, whether it comes back to, uh, <laughs> to uh, um, um, who is it? I think uh, Rosenblatt's and, and, and failure to cite Von Neumann and, 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 and Claude Shannon, uh, excuse me, uh, I think it's actually Bertrand Russell and Von Neumann uh, on, and, and their Principia Mathematica 
and 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 their their use of prepositional calculus. I mean, bad citational practices have always been there, and by bad citational practices are a common playbook to avoid any kind of notion of what you're actually justifying and and where that kind of accountability is. And you say in your podcast and you that you learn to always read the footnotes, right? I always I listen so it's That's true. The, the motto. Uh, so after three years, so you wrote it in uh, 2020. So how big is too big now? 2022, 2023. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you change your mind? It's the same answer. How, how would you see the same uh, um, search question? No, I think I think the answer is the same. So so the um, paper title includes the phrase how you know can language can language models be too big? Parrot emoji. Um, <laughs> And we, there was a point where we thought the thing about the paper would be it's a paper with an emoji in the title. Um, and the answer is not a specific size. The answer is too big to document is too big to use. That in order to actually um, work responsibly with pattern matching technology, we need to have access to information about what patterns are being matched. And that means access to information about the training data. So in the paper, we say, look, if you're going to build a data set on which to train some sort of machine learning model, You start by budgeting for documentation and you make the data only as large as you can actually document. Um, and have things stopped getting bigger and bigger in the last three years? No, they have not. Have they gotten better documented in the last three years? No, they have not. Um, but I think the point still stands. Um, and one of the interesting things that we're seeing right now, so this idea of data set and model documentation goes back to about 2017, where several groups working independently all sort of twig to the fact that a lot of the harms um, become unmitigatable if you don't know what the training data is. Like documentation doesn't solve things, but it puts you in a position to ask questions like, is this actually a good match for my use case, right? Are the people who are going to be um, accessing this system going to be impacted by the system fairly represented in the data set that the system was trained on? Um, so that idea was developed independently in multiple different um, locations. So I worked on it. Dr. Geber worked on it, Dr. Mitchell worked on it, other people. Um, and what we see now in 2023 is OpenAI saying that they refuse to release information about their data set for safety, which is just nonsense. Um, but it also is very reminiscent of magicians saying, I won't explain my trick. Because if people can't see the data set, then it's very easy for any given output to seem like magic, to seem like, in quotes, emergent capabilities instead of, oh, yeah, okay, well, given that kind of data, here's the kind of pattern we expect to come out. Interesting. So as uh, before, uh, uh, last comment is that while using the emoji, you made the parrot the official ambassador of AI, AI Hive, right? <laughs> so now AI and parrots, I don't know if parrots are happy with that, but uh, it's a fact. Yeah, yeah, my, my apologies to parrots, who I understand are magnificent creatures. Um, I think it's worth clarifying that in the phrase stochastic parrot, we're drawing on the English verb to parrot, which means to repeat back without understanding. Um, and that is making no claims about what happens when you train parrots to use bits of some human language um, in various contexts. Uh, uh, very interesting. And when we are talking about data sets, I think we can move now to uh, Dr. Hanna's paper on AI data set development. So the, the big topic that I thought for us to, to discuss here is AI data set development, how it works, and what are the privacy and fairness considerations that we should uh, have in mind. And I want to, to say that I met Dr. Hanna at the Privacy Law Scholars Conference, right? I think it was two years ago. So I, I was the commentator mm -hmm. of her paper with the Mechtap 
Khan. And so the, the, the title of their paper is The Subjects and Stages of AI Dataset Development, a Framework for Dataset Accountability. And I, I loved uh, back then to comment on this paper. I learned a lot and it has so much. I didn't, I never told you this, Alex, but it has influenced my PhD research and a lot about the intersection of privacy and AI. I, I got inspiration from this paper. And they have a, a, a section about privacy that I think uh, there are so many people here in the audience that are from uh, privacy professionals. So basically, uh, she's talking about, she and, and Merta, they are talking about data set development, the subjects, the stages, and uh, trying to understand where it can go wrong or, or also here where we talk about privacy implications. So uh, just so she, she tells that there are three uh, main, let's say, stages where there can be privacy implications. One is the data collection phase, which as privacy professional, we, we talk a lot about it, the absence of consent, which is very important, and we will talk about it. And then during, when data is being used, so there can be great identification issues, reputational harm and discrimination. And she talks about the, this broader uh, sense of privacy harm. I'd love to hear, I, I want to talk about it a little bit from more of my privacy perspective, but I want to, to hear from your perspective, Alex. How do you see this uh, privacy intersection from an AI Point of view, or you can talk about uh, about the paper a little bit if you want. To, to, I know I don't think most people are familiar. Also, if someone uh, can put in the chat the paper, uh, the title is the subjects and stages of AI dataset development: a framework for dataset accountability. So, if someone can please post, ah, uh, yeah, someone, George, thank you. Um, so, uh, if you want to talk a little bit about it, where the idea came from, and especially the, the, these privacy issues from from your uh, more AI focused perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, I think the idea for this paper came from some conversations with Matab, who is a, a legal scholar, focusing a lot on on the impacts of generative AI, um, especially thinking around privacy, but also copyright. Um, so a, a lot of the discussion came from thinking about the histories of these particular data sets, a project that we had done a few years ago, focusing on certain kinds of what we call genealogies of data sets. And so it's very unclear in, in many of the data sets used. And this is, these are data sets that are public and released. Um, these are not even the data sets that uh, are used to train most of these large language models. Um, but these are the data sets that have been scoped in some kind of way and have been publicly posted on the web in some kind of version. And so um, we had done a survey in a prior paper with uh, Remy Denton and, and um, and Morgan Klaus Showerman focusing on a survey of a bunch of different image data sets. And we're finding some pretty some interest in licensing around the data sets and any kind of privacy or ethical considerations. And found that there were literally none. Um, some of the privacy considerations on some of the data sets were even oddly framed to be um, you must uh, if there was one data set that was around plastic surgery and how people transform in plastic surgery and how that they weirdly should report, you know, their updated visage or name in the plastic surgery. It was a bizarre framing and such a weird, weird kind of way of, of the way that researchers were even thinking about privacy, namely that they weren't thinking about it at all. And so what we were trying to understand was the different ways that privacy considerations would manifest for different types of subjects in the data sets and at different stages of this. So 
it was effectively an, a, an effort to put a typology on this. So we identified a few different subjects in the data set itself. And if you're following along in the paper, on, if you, on, I think in the SSRN version, it's the table on here. So let me scroll down to it since I have it right in front of me. Um, the matrix itself is on page 54. And, and it's this idea of having uh, four different subjects. So data subjects, those are the people that are involved. Uh, who have their representations and traces in the data. So this is people who have had their faces or their utterances or things about them in the data set. So this is very similar to the way that the GDPR focuses on thinking about data subjects. But we include amongst those three more data annotators, the people who are doing the data work and involved in doing uh, kind of the labor on these data sets, which is not a trivial number of people. Um, in, in I, I think I saw Crystal Kaufman, one of the D.A.R.E. fellows in the chat, uh, who is a data worker and an organizer with Tricopticon. Um, so, and there's something of the order of, I think, some estimates of two to 500,000 data workers uh, using the Mechanical Turk platform across the world these days. So this is not a trivial number and is a huge contingency. So data annotators, copyright holders, which I think is getting more and more attention, especially as suit is being brought against different companies. I saw someone in the chat mention that um, uh, George A.R. Martin filed suit um, on the 19th of September, which I didn't even know, against OpenAI. But we've also seen suit been being raised by Sarah Silverman, uh, and the comedian, and also artists like Carla Ortiz. Um, and then lastly, the model subjects, which... Short, in short, is everyone, because everyone is subject to model decisions, um, whether you like it or not, uh, and often without knowledge. And so that kind of affects everyone. And then the different stages of different data set development. So that includes collection, as you mentioned, but also we argue in the paper data cleaning, annotation, and in model inference, and as well as data representation and distribution. So thinking about privacy implications, there's privacy and copyright implications uh, at nearly every step of the data set development and model development uh, lifecycle. And as Emily mentioned, these responsibilities to these different subjects is being abrogated and ignored at nearly every step. And I love that you bring it, which is very progressive, let's say very uh, forthcoming, and, and I discussed that in my PhD, this broader approach to privacy harm, right? When you talk about discrimination mm -hmm. and, and when, when the, the data set is biased or when it, it, it portrays a certain group of people in a distorted way, it's also a form of uh, broad privacy harm, right? So when you're distorting people's representation, data representation, it's uh, another type of harm privacy harm through data and i love that i think it's new it's showing uh, the, the path that privacy law is taking now when when if you think about ai act and gdpr there, there is convergence there is, there is an intersection here so we are thinking we have to think more broadly about harm and i think you brought it uh, amazingly in the paper so i recommend everybody make sure to download the paper and take a look and and also if you're a privacy professional it has a very important uh, privacy perspective and if we think about AI development, this idea of uh, the data set development and, and the subjects behind it, how could we think of it in the context of protecting fundamental rights, including privacy? So I, I think it's it's interesting to, to say here that people that, that work with privacy, they have, let's say, the, in the when in the in Europe, so we have the GDPR in mind. So we have privacy principles, data subjects, right? We have this very clear fundamental right-based framework. 
And then in AI ethics, there are tools, right? There are transparency and various tools to help uh, like generate more accountability and more transparency and reduce bias. So from an AI perspective, and, and later we are going to talk about this uh, working together, but from an AI perspective, how in, in both of your, your point of views, how can we ensure or try to, to build tools that, that make sure that fundamental rights will be respected during AI development? So let's say there's someone wanting to, that now that every startup now wants to, to embed AI. So let's say someone in the audience here said, I want to do it right. I really want to do the best I can. I, I'm, I want to, to, to pay attention to GDPR and privacy laws and AI ethics. So how can I think about, what, where should I start? So what are the available tools and how, how can I think of it in, in a more practical sense? Um, so I, I mean, it's a huge question. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so I think one, yeah, it's a yeah. one, one part yeah. of the answer, if you're talking about making some new technology, is to really make sure the technology is carefully scoped. That is, what is it mm -hmm. that you're building? Who's it for? How do you evaluate how well it works? And how can you provide transparency to the user and people who might be affected by it around what's happening there, you know, when automation has occurred, um, what the, again, what the training data is, and, what, um, and then information about sort of how it was evaluated. And one of the issues that frequently comes up with these large language models that people are perceiving as AI is that they seem to be everything machines. Because they can output plausible sounding text on any topic, it seems like they could be used as robotherapists, as robo-lawyers, as robo-educators. Um, and these are all the things that we're taking apart in the podcast, right? Um, and what's missing and where things go right is evaluation, right? So when when there's a system that expects technology to be validated, to be usable within certain parameters, these things fail and they fail very clearly. Um, and so if you are working in the startup world and you want to create something that's got some machine learning embedded in it um, or some kind of language model embedded in it, my advice would be, first of all, define the task very clearly. Um, and you know that's swimming upstream, right? To, to get the venture capital money, you have to promise the moon and the stars. Um, and that's where actually a lot of things start to go off the rails. And, and, and I would say just in, oh, sorry. No, no, say, say, say. <laughs> I was, I, I mean, I'm thinking about the different kinds of elements of fundamental rights, right? And fundamental rights include things like, um, I mean, in the US, we call them civil rights, um, but we also think about fundamental rights around work and labor, right? And so the, I think the thing that's been paid more attention to has been around discrimination and bias, which rightfully so, we should focus on discrimination and bias. Um, but at the same time, there's the elements of the kind of ways in which, you know, you have the right of organization, you have the right to, you know, right to a living wage, you have the right to um, all these different things, um, which are going to ensure uh, livelihood, right? And so, so much of the development has been running roughshod of, over so much of those different rights. Um, and and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna play the way of uh, I'm focusing on the chat. I see, I see someone Denise A Esquire in the chat says something like, "What do you think about web scraping for LLMs?" And one of the things about it is that well, you think have to think about web scraping is doing. Web scraping is taking content indiscriminately and putting it in LLMs to train, and so that's why you have people. Um, like Silverman, like George A. R. R. Martin, who are saying you're using 
my labor and my intellectual property. And I mean, I think about it more as a labor issue. You're using this labor that I spent years of honing my craft or of writing to then output. And I'm using this term that Emily has, has said, extrude, extrude plausible sounding text uh, into something that is not yours and you're claiming it to be yours, right? And the sort of tools that we have around that are pretty weak in the US. I mean, we have kind of kind of the weak tools around copyright law to, to safeguard that, um, but you, we don't really have these tools around uh, thinking about different types of guard around the kind of work that we do and the labor that we do to maintain this. And so, you know, what are the kind of frameworks for that? Well, I mean, there needs to be some kind of a much stronger mechanism for what kind of information can get encoded in these models and we use the train. Uh, so um, if you're doing this right, how are you even sourcing those data? If you were actually doing this with meaningful author consent, what is what would that even look like? And we don't even, I don't even think we have models of thinking about that right now. I mean, the only kinds of people that I think are dealing with this in any kind of meaningful way are organizations like Teheku Media, who's focused on developing uh, ideas around data sovereignty and how they're focused on the developing machine learning tools for the Te Maori, Te Rio Maori language have focused on doing this with meaningful community consent. Right now, there's very few companies thinking about that. It is scraping this um, with no respect to the data subjects and the people who have labored on these data or whose faces are in these data or the kind of, kind of, different kinds of data uh, and, 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 and kind of ownership um, uh, considerations. And just compl complimenting Alex, so I think from a privacy point of view, for those, I, I write a lot about that at the Privacy Whisperer, we have a, a, a crisis in, in, a, in a typical privacy perspective. If we think about basic privacy rights and principles, let's say right of access, uh, right to be forgotten, uh, data minimization, purpose limitation, and th those are G GDPR guaranteed and, and every company should be uh, compliant with it uh, that processes personal data. And when we think about large language models and the way they are trained, it's uh, we, we might say it's unfeasible, at least current models. If if someone, if I, uh, if I go to OpenAI, I say, please delete all my data. I don't want my uh, ChatGPT to ever output my, anything about me it's important they cannot do it they would have to retrain again because all the info it's impossible to delete and it's a right if you look at if you read the gdpr i should be able to do that i, I want my right to be forgotten i don't want to have anything to do with uh chat gpt i cannot exercise this right or data minimization it's a very important privacy principle which says that you should collect the the least data possible as we were talking about like how big is too big so no that's not the logic behind how the, the minimum part, it's the maximum part, the, the as, as big as it can get or purpose limitation gdpr says that we should you should collect data for a specific purpose and you should be transparent this is the purpose and especially those models they are being thrown out to the public there's no there are plugins and you can use it for new purposes and every time is something new so of course there's not purpose limitations so in from a privacy perspective and i've said that in other uh, live talks how, how do we think about for, for privacy professions it's a big big challenge so do we ignore the gdpr so when we say that okay the gdpr doesn't apply to to those guys because it's impossible or no we are going to, and and there are lawsuits if you if you're following there are, i think two or three already i wrote uh, last week about two that, that i was following there's a new one that i didn't have access yet but people are suing because they say 
we have to choose. Either the GDPR is applicable and those guys have to delete and start again. They have to ask, maybe not scrape data. There's no consent. There's also, so for, for those here that are not privacy professionals, the GDPR says that to collect data, they, you have to have a, a lawful basis to collect data, personal data. And the, the ones that have to do with the commercial uses, they can be consent, legitimate interest or contract. So nobody here had a contract with OpenAI. So we crossed, the co contract doesn't work. Consent, also nobody, uh, the, in 2020, when they were training, nobody here gave consent. Listen, take all my fa Facebook posts or whatever, it's online on Flickr, Reddit. No, they didn't take consent also. Legitimate interest, really questionable if they can say that it, they have the legitimate interest to collect the whole internet to, to use it for, for profit. So what's left? Nothing. So we have to decide really that regulators have this task. I think it, it's like a bomb and nobody wants to deal with it. And so you, you see some sparks here, the Italian Data Protection Authority, the German. But either we say that the GDPR is applicable, data protection law, we like it as it is, and we make them start again, ask for consent, uh, select the training data set, you guarantee the principles, anyone should be able to, if they should be responsible in case there is a reputational harm, in case the output is a misinformation, hallucination that says something wrong, or then it's not applicable. Those guys are immune. So from a privacy perspective, just a comment here, for especially for those that are not in privacy, it's, it's difficult uh, to understand how we can make sense of both. The large language models are, or AI-based chatbots are they are being developed now and data protection law. It's, it's a big challenge and I'm not sure even uh, how regulators are thinking about that, but it's, I, I, I would not, if a uh, non-AI-based company would have challenges, uh, it would be challenging to be compliant to, with the GDPR. For those uh, AI companies, it would be, I would say, even impossible to be compliant. So it, it's, uh, I, I don't know if you have something to, to say about that, about this privacy perspective. So the, the thing that I always want regulators to keep in mind as they're trying to reason about this is that it's not artificial intelligence. It's automation, it's text processing. And I think a lot of what the tech companies are trying to do is to obfuscate by saying, oh, it's the AI, we're gonna talk about making sure it's aligned with human interests, right? Setting it up as if it were an independent thinking entity. And that makes it seem more difficult to apply current regulations to. Where if it's like, no, there's a company, OpenAI, they collected data in a way that it's not consistent with GDPR. Just take the phrase AI out of the equation. I think it becomes much clearer. I was super excited when Italy's, uh, banned for a little while and then super disappointed when they basically said, okay. yeah. and I might have this wrong, but the way I understand the story was they basically said, okay, OpenAI has allowed an opt out when you're interacting with it. So yeah. you're saying, don't collect any further data from me, but like, what about all of the rest of the Italian data that was collected in order to build the thing? And, and that was astonishing to me that they sort of backed off so quickly. Um, and I really appreciate it when regulators can look at this and say, we aren't trying to regulate AI. We're regulating the activities of people and businesses. Mm -hmm. And the stuff is not actually mysterious. Um, and just because the companies are trying the, you know, move first, ask permission later strategy doesn't mean you have to give permission. And there is a principle, in, 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 like a framework called privacy by design, which was, it was developed by Dr. N. Kavokin. And it said like seven basic principles. Basically, it says that privacy has to be embedded from the beginning. And what I say is that companies like OpenAI, they do privacy by pressure. So they are, look, it's a gold <laughs> rush. So they don't have anything. And then comes, okay, the Italian, and, and I, I wrote a, a, a newsletter about that. There's like a timeline. So they had nothing, no, no even no notice about 
misinformation. It was really wild. Like anyone, just go it and have fun. There will be this chat. It looks like almost alive. And then the, the Italian band, and then they added uh, like a, a pop-up, like, listen, the, the, the data that you input can be used for training and be, make sure that it's that, that can be wrong, uh, mistaken or misinformation. And then, okay, then came the Germans, the German data protection. Okay, we are also asking you for documentation. And then a new new pop-up comes on and a new feature, the 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 offline, right, the like yeah, opt out of training. So it feels like they're really playing wild. If like the Mark Zuckerberg thing, move fast and break things, it's it's really that's what happened. They, they, it's a it's a gold rush. And privacy by design it's not a, doesn't look like applicable. It's just go fast. And, and in the case, as Emily was commenting on the Italian data protection, my my feeling is the AI the hype one. I I I I could see I could hear the voice of all the Italians. Damn it, no, just allow it. We want to play it. And, and they just said, okay, they, they just sent us some whatever transparency and let's 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 allow. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's it's challenging and and. and and I want to hear from from your point of view. If we would, bring, and there's no answer. I think it's challenging from both sides. If we would think of a way of how AI ethics people and AI people from the AI community that are working for so long with AI principles and transparency and tools and how to make it uh, less biased or safer, how can this community that is for more than a, maybe two decades already heavy heavy work in this field can work together with these privacy professionals now that they feel this need to learn more about AI governance and help companies to to play safe with AI? So how how do you see like it's really a brainstorm? I have no uh, I'm throwing it out here. How can these two communities that are really uh, different worlds and different uh, principles and and the privacy community is very very legally focused? And I would say AI is usually more like social slash technical. So how they can work together, these uh, legal people and AI community? <laughs> um, I mean, the, I, I yeah, I guess I, the thing is, I think it would be, I think there is a risk, you know, in both types of communities. I mean, I'm, in the way that privacy, I would say one of the things that that I would imagine is to try to avoid this very legalistic or very compliance focused type of effort or thinking about it. Um, I, I don't know too much about privacy, but know that much of the focus has been on kind of technical elements of this. So can you apply something to be, you know, we, we used differential privacy, hurrah. Now we've, we've, <laughs> we've found it some way to be compliant in certain ways, but there's still so many different ways about even thinking about privacy and privacy being contested. And, and I mean, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, uh, Deirdre Mulligan's work right around privacy and the way that privacy is, a uh, uh, for kind of a, what is the term like essentially contested concept, the idea that there's contestation around this, um, and I mean, I think where we're focusing on this and converging is thinking about privacy as being this element uh, of, of data and, and how data is being used and data is coalescing and how what we're thinking about a lot is the way in which um, these language models focus on violating fundamental rights, violating civil rights, violating labor rights. Um, and there is a way in which these come together. Whereas if your privacy is being violated, also the kinds of ways in which 
your kind of right to livelihood and right to living a good life in a society is also being violated by these tools. So I think there is a lot of overlap in that. Uh, and there are definitely ways in which these these communities can learn from each other. Yeah, and I, I think this is just amplifying what Alex just said, but basically if you are coming into the literature on you know, AI ethics or societal impacts of AI, um, so you know things that are published, for example, at the Fairness, Accountability and Transparency Conference or um, AIES, which is AI Ethics in Society, I think, um, or you know a lot of the um, conferences that do a lot of machine learning work, including the ones that are purely focused on machine learning, will have tracks about this or associated workshops. Um, there is definitely something to learn from there, but beware the tech solutionism. You're also mm -hmm. going to find papers that say, hey, look, with this one cool mathematical formula, we can solve societal problems. Um, and it, there is, unfortunately, in society, this valorization. Um, this is what Dr. Gabru calls um, hierarchies of knowledge that right now we're, we're living in a moment, I think, especially in the US and Canada, but probably elsewhere in the world too, where sort of engineering computer science um, is considered the most um, valuable, most difficult, most respect worthy way of knowing. Um, and anything that is connected into the messy realities of people in society is less so. And so it can be tempting to say, oh, hey, look, those clever engineers have come up with a way to make the system fair. So we're just going to implement that and it's good. Um, and I want everyone who is working outside of, you know, sort of math, science, engineering fields to, to really take heart and take confidence in your expertise and your ways of knowing and don't fall for that and to come in with a critical eye and say, okay, to what extent is this thing that claims to be solving fairness or whatever really grounded in understanding of what that means for the societal context that it's meant to be deployed in? So there's there's definitely stuff to learn from there. There are also bits of the literature that might be making interesting proposals, but they are way oversold um, or could be taken as oversold because they, they lack the foundation in the legal expertise, in the social science, in the understanding of how people work that would really make them as valuable as they could be. Wonderful. L love the way to conclude it. Like to, to, we have to fight the hype every time, even when, when researching, when reading about it, when thinking how to apply it. Uh, I, I, I think the, the, uh, we should move to the questions. So please, before we, I, I will say something uh, soon, but please write down your questions. If you have questions, I think we have time for one or two. So please write now in the chat your questions. And before we move to the questions, make sure to subscribe to the Privacy Whisperer and also to check the Mr. AI Hype Theater 3000. You see, I said it right now. So they are having an episode tomorrow. What, what's the, 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 the topic of tomorrow? It's about how uh, we, to, we can think about AI in the context of learning and schools, right? Yes, in particular, looking at AI hype in the context of education. Um, so that's tomorrow's live stream. Um, it's at noon Pacific time. Um, and then and that's going to be at twitch.tv underscore dare, sorry, twitch.tv slash dare underscore institute. I think I got it right. But you can check yes. um, our social media feeds, including LinkedIn, to, to find the details. Um, and we will be talking with Haley Lepp about some AI hype artifacts uh, in the field of education. And let me see if there are questions. So even when it's... Okay, so Alexander uh, is asking, even when they succeed in social sciences courses, decision makers miss the inside. How might we collaborate for the greater good? Let's, let me see if we have more questions. Uh, 
I can I can answer that question just as a trained social scientist, you know, it's very difficult to say having insight in courses and then saying bringing them to decision makers and say, hey, this is what I learned in a social science course. Maybe don't do that. Um, and a lot of that is because there are certain kind of pressures within organizations, right? And so I would say, I mean, it, it takes a lot of, and this is more of a kind of organizational strategy kind of thing. But if you're thinking about trying to do this, I mean, it takes a lot of leadership buy-in for this, right? And in the face of ever more hype within corporations, it can be a very, very difficult sell, right? So, I mean, one of the kinds of things that I think is a discussion of this is thinking about the different ways in which those insights from particular sorts of fields can be discussed at the level of policymakers and at civil society to put pressure in differential pressure on different decision makers. Thank you. I think that there was some for Emily. You want to answer this one Emily, that Brian made? Uh, Emily made an interesting point in a podcast a while back that chess algorithms were once thought as of AI until they were fully understood and there was no more hype or mystic. It had a clearly defined and understood goal and function. It's more of a philosophical point, but is AGI an appropriate or acceptable or even feasible goal if we don't truly understand intelligence? This is a question. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely not a goal that I hold. And I think that a lot of harmful work is done in the service of trying to build AGI or pretending to have built or be on the path towards building AGI. AGI stands for artificial general intelligence. And the idea is that it's meant to be a system that is uh, flexibly able to learn and do new things the way a human might. Um, and it's hugely problematic. And I think we need to come back to good engineering practice and say, if you build something, you first say what you're building it for. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting Dr. Tamit Gebru all over the place here, but I, I really appreciate her work. And she has a wonderful talk that was a keynote at a conference called SATML, S-A-T-M-L, that you can find online, where she makes the point that AGI is fundamentally unscoped technology. And so it is just poor engineering practice. And so anytime someone asks me, well, but how would we build AGI? My answer is, what do you want that for? Why are you building that? Um, and I've never heard actually a good answer to that question. Um, and as Alexandra and Carolyn puts out in the chat there, there's a deep connection between AGI and um, eugenics and the whole Tescreal bundle of ideologies, to borrow the term that Dr. Tamit Gebru and Dr. Emil Torres uh, coined recently for this. So yeah, um, we need to stay away from that and think in terms instead of you know building technology with specific use cases um, that we can understand and, and create in ways that are beneficial and compliant with um, things like privacy regulation. Uh, well, I, I would also say that the, the other part of that question was saying that chess itself was a very well-scoped thing, but chess, even if it was well-scoped as a kind of objective, chess was meant as a stand-in for general intelligence, right? I mean, the kind of way that early AI people were thinking about chess was that it was a stand-in for larger types of processes, which is not true right i mean it's 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 you build uh you build an algorithm that is good at chess it's not going to do other types of problem solving but there's a way in which even the way that these things get talked about get reduced to that there's a history of science article um that i'd love to refer to by nathan ensmeger which is called is trust is chess the dysphilia of artificial intelligence the dysphilia being the fruit fly used in laboratory studies that became a stand-in for many different types of 
biological processes, but it's kind of like you prove that you did something, you, you've sequenced the genome of this fruit fly. Um, that's what you've sequenced, um, but you've missed how complicated genomes could be in more complex organisms. So I think we, we checked the box of AGI, chess, uh, eugenics. So I think we, we, we spoke about everything related, AI hype related. So thank you so much for joining me, Alex and Emily today. I'm so happy. Uh, this was a very anticipated session. Uh, you think, yeah, ah, someone posted here, it, you were asking the, for the link for the Twitch. The, the, so it's here, Krista just posted. So everybody please for uh, their podcast tomorrow. And I want to invite Alex and Emily to say some last words to the audience, maybe some whatever you want, final math, ask them to follow you on Twitter or to listen to the podcast or to read your article. So please, you can, you can have your, your some final words. Yeah, yeah. So please do join us for the podcast. Um, Mystery AI Hype Theater 3000 can be found on all the podcast platforms. Um, if you want to catch it first when it's fresh then join us live we've got our next episode tomorrow <laughs> if you want to be up to date on when those live ones are coming out you can follow us on social media i'm um i'm at emily m bender at dare-community.social on the fediverse i'm emily m bender on twitter um something similar on blue sky emily m bender at linkedin um and uh it's my job to put out the promos for the podcast when it's coming when um episodes are released then in audio form and so on so you can find it there. And then I guess my other last word is um, resist the urge to be impressed, stay critical and, you know, stand up for your own expertise. And, and yeah, you, and you can follow me. Yeah. You can follow me on Ale Alex Hanna at Twitter, uh, at Alex at their community social on the Fediverse. Um, I don't know what my LinkedIn name is Alex Hanna PhD. Uh, yeah. I will just sign off the way we sign off the podcast. Stay out of AI hell y'all. Thank you everyone for joining, for being so uh, so active in the chat and see you in the next, next live talk. Bye bye everyone. Thank you.